Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. We are continuing in our exposition of this book, and we've entered into a section where Paul is uh, diving into the, uh, the home life, the marriage life and home life that is so needed in the Christian home. And last week we uh, looked at the role of the wife, of a spirit-filled wife. And today we're going to be looking at the spirit-filled husband. Now, I was told last week that uh, thanks, uh, somebody told me, thank you for taking it easy on, on us ladies, but next week let them men have it. And uh, so I notice our attendance is a little lower this week than it was last week. <laughs> so men, if you're listening online, you can run, but you can't hide. And uh, so I'm just teasing. I know that providence often often hinders attendance and that sort of thing, but I'm thankful for everybody that's here to worship and gather around the scriptures and I pray we can glean much from this, and uh, this will be directly, directly directed to uh, the role of the husband. And uh, so I've received my poking and conviction, and so I'm going to pass it on, pass it on to all you husbands, okay? And, and uh, we all can glean things from this, because within this text is not just the role of the husband, uh, it is the gospel itself. And how beautiful the picture is here, the gospel and uh, of what this text reveals to us. So let's look at Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 25. He says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. You know, marriage consists of one man and one woman in a covenant union together. Marriage is a beautiful and sacred institution that has been ordained by God from the very beginning. And we know from Scripture that marriage is vital, marriages are vital and essential to the family unit, they are essential to the church, the, the society at large. And as we have already mentioned and are well aware of, marriage is under a great assault in our present day and in our culture. That's undeniable. We see the assault and the attempts to redefine marriage with a variety of ways. We might look externally at our culture with the uh, heavy push for the LGBTQ uh, movement and trying to redefine marriage and reestablish marriage in ways that are unnatural and unholy and obvious uh, error and rebellion against God. But then there are also, understand that the attack on marriage is not just, not just outwardly in culture, but it's also inward within the marriage itself. It starts really with an ignorance of or rebellion against God's order in the home. Because God has set order in the home. He's not left it up to us just to decide we're going to do it however we want to do it. 
He has given us order in the home. And so the attack on marriage, understand, it firstly begins within. Now there's a reason Paul writes what he writes in this passage, and it is because a biblical marriage is vital to the family. A biblical marriage functions in a particular way because the husband and wife have a specific role they've been given by God in the marriage. Now we recall last week, we looked at verse 22 through verse 24, which makes clear the role of the wife in the home. God commands the wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. So why does the wife submit to her own husband? Because God has placed the husband as the head of the home, even as Christ is the head of the church. This submission involves a, a loving reverence for and obedience to her husband as, as the one that God has set as the leader in the home. This does not mean that the wife is inferior or is to be ruled over by uh, the husband, but that she follows God's ordained pattern in order for what the home is to be, the relationship in the marriage is to be. And now our text comes to the husband's responsibility and his role. And all our women say amen, right? Husbands, pay attention. Now understand, I think it's imperative for us to see this, that the husband's role, it is inseparable from also the wife's role. This all flows together. The love of the husband for the wife and the wife's submission of the husband, they are interlocked. They are uh, interconnected together. And so if the wife is to fulfill her role and the husband is to fulfill his role, what do they both need in order to do that? And I think this gen- the central principle here in context and the flow of Ephesians in this, this passage is that they both need to be filled with the Spirit in their life. I remind you that being filled with the Spirit means, firstly, that you possess the Spirit, you're born again, but secondly, also, it means that you are under His influence and under His control. You say, well, how can I live my life under the influence and control of the Spirit? By yielding and obeying the Word of God. You want to be Spirit-filled? Fill your life with the Scriptures, because the Scriptures come from who? The Spirit of God. So that's how you live your life under His influence and under His control. And my personal conviction today is I want to be a Spirit-filled husband. Husbands, do you want to be that? I don't hear any amens, women. You might be in trouble. Husbands, do you want to be that? Amen, right? You should. So what does a Spirit-filled husband look like in the marriage relationship? Notice with me the role of the husband in the home. Three points I want to bring to your attention and they're very plain, drawn from the scriptures here today. The, hus- uh, the husband here, understand, he is commanded to love his wife faithfully. He is commanded to love his wife faithfully. Verse 25, Paul says, God says through Paul, rather, husbands, love your wives. I'm going to just pause at that little sentence, that little phrase, husbands, Love your wives. Now, bear in mind the context. Who's the audience? It is the husbands. And what is a husband? I know you don't need this definition, but the world might listen in, and they're struggling with definitions. A husband is a male who's married to a female. That's what a husband is. And this direct command applies to all of us husbands here today. You must love your wife. Now, if you're not a husband yet, and you might be looking one day to get married, pay attention, because this is the command to you also. This will be yours. What does it mean to love your wife? The word love here, the Greek word that's used is agapeo, and it means to have a warm regard for an interest in another. And there, there are several Greek words used for love, but this particular one, it conveys a very deep affection. 
A very deep affection. It's the same word that John uses in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will have eternal life and not perish. It's the same word that's used when describing God's love for Christ and Christ's love for his people. In John 15, 9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. We'll see more of that, that truth shortly as we come through this text. But, but understand that while this Greek word agapeo may be used in a general way in the context of these passages, it conveys a very deep, affectionate, particular love. So you understand that love is not always the same among all people. It's just not. God's love for his son, Jesus, is a peculiar, particular love. God's love for his people is a peculiar, particular love. The love of the husband for his wife is a peculiar, particular love. Now, I can honestly say that I love every individual in this room, but there is a deeper form of love that I have for my wife. I don't love all of you the same way in which I love my wife. And you who are married would say the same thing about your spouse. There's a particular form of love within this covenant bond. Now the command for the husband is to love his wife. And this is critical to the marriage union and the family unit as a whole. It is an imperative for the husband to love his wife. I want you to see this, that this is a command. It is not an option. It is not a suggestion. He doesn't say, well, if you feel like it, love your wife. No, he says, love your wives, husband. Love your wives. It's not optional. It's an imperative. Just as much as don't get drunk with wine is an imperative. Don't do that. Just as much as be a doer of the word is an imperative. Do this. So so you're not given the option to not love your wife. You say, well, I don't know. I just don't feel like I love her anymore. Then there's something terribly wrong in your heart and in your marriage, and you need to fix it. You need to seek some uh, godly direction in that. You need not run from it. You need to see what you can do to fix it with God's help. Perhaps neither of you have been living out God's design for the marriage, making your marriage unstable and distant. By all means, this happens in marriages quite often. You can grow distant from your spouse. It's a reality that happens. But in either case, regardless of how you feel at this moment, understand, husbands, that doesn't change the command of this text. Love your wife. And there's this particular way that you need to love your wife, as it we'll look at in a moment. But I want you to understand that this love, often it needs cultivating and reviving. And in this command, it remains the same regardless of what state you're in. John, John MacArthur says this, A husband is not commanded to love his wife because of what she is or is not. He is commanded to love her because it is God's will for him to love her. You know, most people think they fall out of love with their spouse when they start looking beyond God's will. They start looking at other people and it's like, man, I wish my wife was like that. Or I wish my wife looked like that. Or I wish my husband would do this like that person does. And as you begin looking beyond the will of God, you begin to go the wrong direction. And ultimately, you bring detriment to your own marriage. So understand that this is a command. If you don't love your wife, you are in disobedience to God. I think it's helpful to come back to the reason why you married your wife in the first place. Why did you pop that question long ago? Why did you pop that question? 
got down on one knee and said, will you marry me? You understand what that question means? You're saying, will you be covenanted to me for life? Why'd you, why'd you say that? Why'd you ask her that long ago? What's the reason you married her? Did you marry her because you love her or because of another reason? If you married her for a reason other than love, you married her for the wrong reason. If you married her for her money, wrong reason. If you married him for his money, wrong reason. Bethany thought she was getting rich when she said yes to me. Why? She was sorely disappointed. I'm just teasing. But I'll always remember the night I finally popped the L word to Bethany, right? That's always a nervous moment. <laughs> I was nervous about that, and I was thinking, man, what if I say I love you, and she doesn't feel that way, or she's not going to say that back to me, and, you know, kind of like the old cartoon where he's plucking flowers, she loves me, she loves me not, she loves me, she loves me not, you know, trying to figure out what's going on, and, and uh, I finally mustered up the courage to come out and express my heart, and thankfully she felt the same way. I had and still do have a deep affection for her that I don't have for anyone else in this world. That is why I am committed to her with my life. And the same applies to every marriage. If you marry someone without having a deep affectionate love for that person, then you married for the wrong reasons. Now, this is one of the great problems in marriages today. People get married flippantly. As if it's not a big deal. As if it's some subscription that they can just cancel later. That's how marriage is treated. It's not a Netflix account. It's not a Hulu account. You don't just, I'm just going to cancel it later if I don't feel good about it. It's a very serious, lifelong commitment. It's not something to take lightly. It's not something just to be flippant about. Marriage is a lifelong union bound in love to each other with the Lord at the center of the marriage. So love for our spouse, understand it is to be binding for life. As we see in verse 31, Paul says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. You two in your life become one. You're not two separate people anymore. You're one person. All of life unified together. Now understand, Paul isn't just coming up with some new marriage idea. What's he doing in this text? He's taking them back to the created order in the very beginning. God's original design and what he ordained in marriage. He is quoting Word for word, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24. But then we also see Jesus. He quotes this when contending with the Pharisees. Look with me, if you would, at Mark chapter number 10, and look with me at verse 2 through 9. Mark chapter number 10 and verse 2 through 9. I want you to notice this passage. The Pharisees came up and in order to test him, bear in mind they're trying to bring to him hard questions. That's their intention, Right? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. 
What therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder or separate. You understand that divorce was not God's original design in marriage. Now, I understand that divorce happens, and there are biblical reasons for divorce, but that is not a light matter. That is not a light matter whatsoever. It should be voided as much as possible, as Jesus plainly says, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. But you understand that central to a strong marriage, a marriage being strong and withstanding the test of a lifetime, is love. Love is central to this. It's foundational. Love must be cultivated and and communicated between the two spouses if the marriage is to last. So understand, if husbands love their wives as themselves, and if wives submitted to their husbands as the church does to Christ, I believe this, the divorce rate would be a lot less if the biblical order of the home was followed and lived out and practiced. Now, while we know that the wife and husband are to love each other, this isn't, you know, just, well, wives, they're not supposed to love their husbands. It's both. Both, both love each other. I think it's important to understand and look at who the command is given to. The command is given to the husband to love his wife. You notice that God doesn't say, husbands, rule over your wife. He says, love your wives. Love your wives. Now, this also shows us that the wife's command to submit is not in any way an inferior role, but is directly tied to the husband's role of loving her. As a husband genuinely loves his wife and leads her in that love, it ought to be easy for the wife to submit to the leadership of her husband. And the same vice versa. The wife can make it difficult for the husband to display love. There ought to be balance in both areas here. But this, this is the Christian and correct way of marriage. Now you understand that in, in the ancient world, it was largely a man's world, and the wife was often demeaned by the men. Still is in various cultures and religious communities. For example, the Greeks often confined women of the household to their own quarters and did not even permit them to eat meals with the men. I don't think that's a biblical way that the home should work. But in the Christian home, what do you find? You find that the husband and wife, they are equals. They are equals, having their own unique role in the function of the marriage and the home. The husband is not superior to the wife. The wife is not inferior to the husband. And so we understand that rather than lording over the wife, the husband is to honor her, to understand her, and to respect her as well, and show this love to her in the home, and how he treats her. Peter said it this way, 1 Peter 3, 7. Peter said, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So, so you notice that the love of the husband causes him to live with his wife in an understanding way. Knowing that their wives, his wife, is the weaker vessel. Now understand this. Peter is not saying that women are weak. Don't misunderstand that. 
In fact, women have a whole lot more strength than men in certain ways. I thought I was pretty tough until I saw my wife give birth to three kids. I'll just tell you right now, there ain't no way a man could endure such pain and agony. The closest pain we get is when we get a cold, right? Man, that's miserable. When Peter says weaker here, he's referring to physical strength, not to the moral or spiritual or mental ability of the wife. Peter is simply saying that men are naturally stronger than women. You know why? Because God made them that way. There's a reason men, biological men don't belong in women's sports. Amen? Because they're built differently. It's not right. Our world wants to turn this upside down. They're, they're trying to make it where women should be in the role of men, and men should be in the role of women, and that destroys society. It's totally backwards. If people would just see, God's order is always right. It makes things function the way it's supposed to function. God made men this way for a purpose. Men are called to protect their wife, provide for their wife, be the one who's willing to die for their wife. That's what this is about. But here's Peter's kind of warning here. A man who loves his wife and honors her and understands her, he will not use his manliness, his strength or appearance to abuse her physically or emotionally. Men who do such things are weak cowards. I have no tolerance for abusive husbands. None whatsoever. Just because a man is made stronger does not, overall, does not make him superior, especially spiritually. Notice that both the husband and wife, both the husband and wife are together, they are heirs. Heirs together in Christ. Paul said in Galatians, there is no more male or female, but they are one in Christ. And so when it comes to our, our standing before God, men and women are equal. This order we're looking at is about the function of the home. And if a man does not love his wife and honor her as he should, but rather uses his manhood and authority to abuse her or be ruling over her in a wrong way, notice that Peter says that his prayers may be hindered. You understand that the relationship and function of your marriage may hinder your spiritual life. You need to be aware of that. So a husband who truly loves his wife, as Paul commands here, will cultivate a healthy and happy marriage. Not only does he do this, but he also portrays in this love a picture of Christ when he loves his wife the right way. Which brings me to letter B this morning. Notice with me, number two, we see his love is contrasted to Christ's love for the church. And Paul really kind of dives in here. And what a beautiful picture this is and how it brings us to the gospel. You see, between the husband and the wife, there is this mutual love. And we have these two commands given to them. Now, some like to compare which, which role is more challenging, the wife submitting or the husband loving. Well, when you consider it, both of them are challenging because our, all of our flesh naturally resists what God has ordered us to do. But I think there is some significance, and I want you to see what husbands are called to do with this. Because there is a great burden on them. To fulfill this. Look at this. Husbands, love your wives. He doesn't end the sentence there, but what's he say to them in verse 25? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I want you just to meditate and chew on that. Love your wife as 
Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now understand, even the natural man who does not know Christ has a love for his spouse to a degree or another. But here we enter into an even deeper level of love that is not possible outside of Christ. This is a love that goes beyond our understanding, yet at the same time is applicable to us. I want to quote from Spurgeon for a moment as he comments on this love. He says, This love of Christ is the most amazing thing under heaven, if not in heaven itself. How often have I said to you that if I had heard that Christ pitied us, I could understand it. If I had heard that Christ had mercy upon us, I could comprehend it. But when it is written that he actually loves us, that is quite another and a much more extraordinary thing. Love between mortal and mortal is quite natural and comprehensible. But love between the infinite God and us poor, sinful, finite creatures, though conceivable in one sense, is utterly inconceivable in another. Who can grasp such an idea? Who can fully understand it? Especially when it comes in this form. He loved me and gave himself For me, this is the miracle of miracles. How deep and wide is the love of Christ towards us? My kids love to sing that song. Sometimes we sing it at night. Deep and wide. And I usually get my hand signals wrong. I go deep and wide, right? And they catch on. They correct me and rebuke me. Deep and wide. Deep and wide. How deep and how wide is the love of Christ? It is beyond measurement, beyond what we can fathom. And yet this is the command to the husband to love his wife the way that Christ has loved the church. And we see a few ways in which this love can be manifested to our finite minds. What kind of love do we see from Christ for the church that the husband should have for his wife? I want to break this down into three Uh, Three ways or categories. We see firstly a sacrificial love. That, That is what is in this little statement. That he gave Christ. He gave himself up for her. That is a statement of sacrifice. A sacrificial love. Now we can easily break this down into even shorter segments. Just for a moment. Notice that he gave. The word gave provokes our thinking to the principle of giving, right? Giving something to another or for another. Now, we often, husbands, give gifts to our wives, right? Bring her a box of chocolates, give her a bouquet of flowers, maybe a piece of jewelry, and those are items of affection, aren't they? They're meant to be items of affection, and they may cost a little bit of Time and a little bit of money. You might have to go out of your way to pick something up and bring it to your wife. Material gifts may be appreciated and show love. But Christ did not just give material gifts here. What is it that he's giving? He is giving himself. He's giving himself. He did not just give a little time or energy to something. Now, we husbands do that, right? It's called a honey-do list. 
Wife has a list of things she'd like her honey to do and take care of. And so we give a little time and energy to do some of those things for our wife because we love love her. But Paul is taking us beyond to the, the fullest extent of sacrifice possible. Christ gave his whole life in death. In death. Shedding his blood for his bride. There is no greater sacrifice than to give one's life, especially in death. Paul describes this beautifully in Philippians 2 when he writes of Christ. Philippians 2 verse 6 through 8, he says of Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. That whole passage really exceeds what I can understand because it, it gives the humility and uh, the, the humiliation of Christ, how he stepped out of the glories of heaven. And though he is God, he did not count that sum to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He, he emptied himself by the way of taking on human nature. He submitted himself to what it is to be a real man and walk in this earth as a real man. And as a real man who knew hunger and thirst and pain and sorrow, he gave himself to die as a man. And in that physical body, he literally died. And not only did he die, he died in a way that was the greatest sacrificial way imaginable. He died by way of a Roman cross, friend. He didn't come into the world just to die of a heart attack or, or, or fall over dead off a cliff. He died by means of the cross. The worst form of execution of that day. You understand that this is the, the chiefest of sacrifices that could have been made. And notice what Paul says here. Jesus gave himself, two little words, for who? For her, who is the her in view? It is his bride, his bride, his church, his chosen people, his elect. Christ has given himself in death for the sake of his bride so that he could purchase her, bring her to himself and rescue her from hell. Because, church, that's where we'd all be heading were it not for Christ who came to die and rescue us. He did this for us. Paul instructing the Ephesian elders earlier, before he wrote this letter, he tells them in their care for the church of Christ, he reminds them of Christ that he obtained his church with his own blood. The church of Christ is not theirs. It is Christ. The church belongs to him. John the apostle wrote in Revelation, Revelation 1.5, and said, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. Notice this last sentence. To him who loved us 
and has freed us from our sins. How? By His blood. It took the blood of Jesus to redeem His bride to Himself. How wonderful the sacrifice of Christ is for His church. Is there any greater love than this? There is none that compares. And Jesus said it Himself in John 15, 13. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. You see, from this short little statement in verse 25 we find an inconceivably deep responsibility to the husband to love his wife as Christ loved the church. And the central point for us husbands is this. We must love our wives sacrificially. Now, How many of us husbands would be willing to lay down our life for our wives? I hope that we all would say yes. We would do that immediately. Someone comes in here with a gun. And they're pointing it at my wife. I'm jumping in front of that gun. I'm her protector. I'm the one that's given that duty. And since this is true, that we should be willing to lay down our lives for our wives, how much more should the husband be willing to live his life sacrificially on her behalf? You say, well, I'm not Christ. I can't love in a sacrificial way. You understand, if you're in Christ, you can love as Christ. Paul wrote this to the Romans. Romans 5, 5. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit has been given to us. Whose love has been poured into our hearts as believers? The love of God. God has implanted His love into the hearts of His people to be manifest in His people. 1 John 3.16, another reference. By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Now understand, if we are to lay down our lives for the brothers in the faith, how much more should we lay down our lives for our wife in the faith that we are united to as one? Sacrificial love is not optional, husband. Mandatory for you. Knowing Christ and having the Holy Spirit enables the husband with the ability to fulfill this command to love your wives as Christ loved the church. And this is why this particular husband must be a spirit filled husband. He is a husband who firstly possesses the Spirit of God through regeneration. He's been born again. But also in his day-to-day life, he yields to the Spirit of God by obeying the Scriptures. By living the Scriptures out. Husband, your call as a husband is a call to die. You are called to die to self. Die to To self and all forms of selfishness. You must love your wife by giving yourself up to her and for her. You must sacrifice on behalf of your wife in whatever way that may be necessary. Husbands, your wife needs that. She needs you more than she needs you to buy her things. She needs you. You. Notice, secondly, with this, not only do we see a sacrificial love, but we continue with this picture of Christ in the church, we see a sanctifying love. A sanctifying love. In verse 26, notice this. This is all continued in this sentence, right? Notice, 
He says that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Now, what does it mean that Christ died to sanctify her? The word sanctify has the meaning of to include a person, an inner circle of what is holy. It is essentially to consecrate or set someone apart. That's what sanctify means. To make them holy, set apart. And this is what Christ has done for his bride. He has set her apart for himself, calling her by name out of the world. And how is it that this consecration was brought to the bride? Well, firstly, through his blood atonement that is applied to them by, Paul says, the washing of water with the word. Now, there's some debate about what Paul is actually referencing. Some point it to regeneration. Some point it to baptism in a picture and symbolic sense. I tend to lean more towards the sense of regeneration. Paul wrote similarly in Titus 3.5 that he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Regardless of what position you take, the point here is that Christ has washed and cleansed the church. And to what end has this consecration come to Christ's church? Verse 27, notice this. It's so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Studying this, I rejoice at what Christ has done for us. You ought to look at this Christian and see the depth of what Christ has done for you. What he's guaranteed for you. You see that Christ has set apart his bride so that she is made like unto himself. He is holy and perfect. That is what he has done for her. Christ's bride, understand, was given to him long ago by God the Father. And his bride was ordained even before the creation of the world to this end. You remember what we read in Ephesians 1. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Do you understand? This is, this is the, the, the eternal sovereign thread from creation past, eternity past to eternity future, is that his bride, his people, that he would redeem, they would be made holy in the end. Though they were born and conceived in sin and vile and wretched and depraved, he would purchase them and bring them to himself and he would purify them so that in the end we would be holy before God forever. This is a work of grace beyond what I can fathom. You see, our election in Christ not only was to save us from our sins, but it was to make us holy before Him. And while our sanctification in this life is progressive, you understand that from God's point of view, it's already permanent. We are sanctified in a positional sense. We're being sanctified in a very practical sense in our human life. But ultimately, this is the end to which Christ brings his bride. It is that we are holy and blameless before him. Perfect. The picture here is, has, is somewhat as a, a wife coming in in that beautiful, clean, white garment. 
without spot, without wrinkle. Solomon said wonderfully to his bride in Song of Solomon, which is often portrayed as a picture of Christ in his church, he says, you are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. And that is what is said of the church in Christ. Well, how does that apply to the husband? Well, just as Christ in his love has sanctified his bride, giving her and making her into the very best that she is to be, so also the husband must do the same for his wife. Husbands ought to have the best intention and goal for their wife, especially spiritually. Listen to John MacArthur comment on this. He says, love what's only, wants only the best for the one it loves. And it cannot bear for a loved one to be corrupted or misled by anything evil or harmful. When a husband's love for his wife is like Christ's love for his church, he will continually seek to help purify her from any sort of defilement. He will seek to protect her from the world's contamination and protect her holiness, virtue, and purity in every way. He will never induce her to do that which is wrong or unwise or expose her to that which is less than good. May I add a little note here for those who might be dating? If you're dating a man that wants to try to get active with you sexually, he does not have your best in mind. The same thing goes for the wife, for the, for the woman dating the man. He want, if you, you, you want somebody who wants your best in mind, and that involves your purity. That involves your sanctification. That involves your holiness. And husbands, understand, this is what our call is for our wives. We must not be passive in loving our wife. We need to be active in seeking her well-being. Be active in this. This is your duty to seek the best welfare for your wife in all areas of life, especially that of their spiritual nature. See, as Christ seeks and accomplishes the best for his church, that is the picture for the husband and his love for his wife, it is to desire the best for her. But we also see, number three, a satisfying love here. As we come down to verse 28 and 29, concerning the husband, and we come through this context and flow, Paul says something significant. He says in verse 28 through 29, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Now, what do you notice in this text? shows us another angle or another way to see this. The husband loves his wife as he would love himself. Now, isn't, isn't it true that people love themselves? You don't have to go far to see that. Just open Facebook or Twitter or whatever social media you're on. Selfie nation, right? Now, I'm not against selfies. Just don't be egotistic with it. In the life of the Christian, you understand that we are called to put others above ourselves. And especially when it comes to the marriage relationship, the husband must love his wife and treat him as above himself. As himself. It, it, again, Charles Hodge comments here. It does not indicate on this particular verse, it does not indicate the measure of the husband's love as though the meaning were he should love his wife as much as he loves his own body. But it indicates the nature of the relation which is the ground of his love. He should love his wife because she is his potty. This is the point, that the husband and wife, they're no longer two people, they are one. 
They are one in relationship and union. That principle is seen in verse 31, as we just read a moment ago, that they're made one flesh. And so this kind of love in the husband, what does it do? This love causes him to nourish and cherish his wife. Christian husbands, pay attention here. Christian husbands should be known for the kind, thoughtful, patient, gentle, and supportive way they lead their wives. Far too often, husbands, even Christian husbands, do not treat their wives with the love that they ought to. And that is a detriment to the Christian testimony. D.L. Moody rightly said, and I agree with him, if a man doesn't treat his wife right, I don't want to hear him talk about Christianity. Because that is key. Christianity is seen in the husband-wife relationship. So husbands, you have a holy and honorable responsibility to your marriage, to love your wife as Christ loved the church. That is a sacrificial love. It is a sanctifying love. And it is a satisfying love relationship. Lastly, let us see. We're almost done, husband. Hang in there. He is called in his role for the glory of Christ. This is identical to our point last week with the role of the wife. The wife is called in her role to what purpose? The glory of Christ. The husband is called in his role to what purpose? It is the glory of Christ. And at the center of all this instruction, wives submit to your husbands, husbands love your wives. At the center of all of this, in the bigger picture, it is the glory of Christ. And and you narrow it down, you understand that marriage itself, it was created and ordained by Christ, who is God. And God chose the marriage union to be the picture of Christ and his bride, the church. And as we see here, Paul makes known this great mystery. Verse 32, he says, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, we've seen the word mystery several times in Ephesians already. By mystery, Paul speaks of a hidden plan that was not clear in old time, but now has come to fulfillment in Christ. He interprets the original creation of the husband and wife union as itself modeled on Christ's forthcoming union of Christ and his church. And so from the very beginning, marriage, marriage from the very beginning of creation was created by God as a reflection of and to be patterned after Christ's relationship to the church. And thus Paul commands regarding the roles of the husbands and wives not just to do something that is in the culture or something that seems right, but something that God has ordained for the very glory of Christ himself. What a picture this is, Christian. What glory belongs to Christ in our marriages? With this glorious mystery revealed in marriage about Christ and his church, Paul closes this exhortation in verse 33, basically summarizing it all. Here's what he says. However, let each of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the call the marriage, to have spirit-filled spouses. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church.
Wives, submit to your husbands as the church does to Christ. It is vital to the glory of Christ. John MacArthur rightly says the Christian husband displays what he thinks of Christ by the way he treats his wife. You know, I've met many people, men, who claim they love Christ, love Christ, love Christ, but treat their wife like garbage. And I can tell you right now, if you treat your wife like garbage, you don't love Christ like you think you do. You just don't. Both the role of the wife and the husband are sacred and special. They are a divinely ordained function that must be fulfilled. And if we are to fulfill it, we need the Spirit of God and His help, don't we? Because we depend on the Spirit of God in all aspects of our Christian life. I can't live the Christian life without the help and aid of the Holy Spirit. I just can't do it. Neither can you. That is why this call is a call to the wife to be spirit-filled so that she will fulfill that role. This call is a call to the husband so that he will be spirit-filled so that he can fulfill this role. Marriages depend on this. Homes, families depend on this being fulfilled. Let us take it and live it and apply it to our life today. Let's stand as we have a closing song. Father in heaven, we bow before you this morning and thank you for the text of scripture that you've given to us. Father, certainly there are some texts of scripture that hit a lot deeper into the core of our hearts and our souls. But we know that when they hit in such a way, that there's a reason that it is what we need. Father, my prayer is that you would enable me to faithfully be a spirit-filled husband. That is my desire. I pray that you would give every husband in here that desire, every man who's longing or looking to be a husband that desire. Help the ladies, the women, the wives to fulfill their role as well. Help us to together cultivate a strong, spirit-filled marriage for the glory of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.